I'll start this off. There are a lot of things to consider when you're getting a new bike. If you want a cross-country bike, an enduro bike, long travel, short travel, a one-by drivetrain, or maybe a two-by or even a three-by, a carbon frame, aluminum frame, heck, you might even want a steel frame. These are just a few of the options that you gotta think about when you're finding your perfect bike. But one decision that tends to bring up a lot more passion and perhaps controversy would be the wheel size. Are you going 26, 27.5, 29, plus size? This might actually be the most hotly debated topic in cycling. Welcome to episode two of Kendall vs. Kendall. I'm Jeff Kendallweed. And I'm Seth Kendall. And today, we're going to take on the wheel size debate in all its messy glory. All right, Jeff, let's start by uh, jumping into some history here. Um, we obviously know that today we're seeing wheel sizes of 29, 27.5, and some 26 stuff that's legacy still. How did we land on a wheel size of 26 to start? I honestly have no idea, but ever since the early 80s, all mountain bikes were basically 26-inch wheel, and the vast majority of bikes must have been 26 from probably 80 or 81 right in there until, I would say, 2008, 2009. Yeah, it seems like uh, right there kind of... Uh, what we're calling mid-2000s is about when things really started to change. As far as I understand, on the 26 wheel size, that was actually kind of a uh, default coming from the clunker world where people were taking cruisers that had these wheels on them and they were finding tires that happened to be on the uh, bigger balloonier side. Uh, and that's kind of how we ended up there. There wasn't a whole lot of what seemed like testing or figuring out what the best wheel size was. It was just what we had. So kind of interesting that we went to 26, but I think that uh, for a lot of us, 26 was a really awesome wheel size. I don't know if you agree, but uh, you know, I rode a lot of 26 inch bikes through my days and man, they were really fun. And coming in from a BMX background, my first experience on mountain bikes in the mid-90s, I couldn't believe how big those 26-inch wheels were. Those things were freaking huge. Compared to a 20, it was way flexier. It was definitely heavier. They were just, they would taco if you looked at them sideways. So I thought they were massive, and I still thought they were massive until folks started talking about 29s. I barely accepted 26 in the late 2000s. So to have to then go three inches bigger, it was kind of like a head explosion moment. Yeah, so how how did you feel coming kind of from the um, industry side with uh, WTB and IBIS where you were seeing tires and uh, wheels and frames being designed for this new 29 thing? How did, how did you feel or how did we get to be 29 curious? Right, so there's always been folks experimenting with kind of one-off designs. Wes Willits, formerly an IBIS guy back in the day, he lives in Colorado now, and he's been separate from IBIS for many years. He was really pushing the 29 thing. It was really big 700C tires, essentially, in the late 90s. And WTB does one thing way better than just about every other tire company, and that's they innovate really well with new sizes. So WTB made the first 29-inch mountain bike tire. They also made the first Road Plus. They did the first 27.5 Plus. So there's a bunch of legitimate innovations that WTB pushed. WTB's been really good at kind of identifying when a new idea is going to be something fairly legitimate and running with it. And so WTB in 1999 produced the first commercially available 29-inch actual mountain bike tire, and that was the Nano Raptor 2.1. And to this day, that tire is still widely available. Since then, WTB also began the 27.5 Plus movement. No one else was doing 27.5 Plus tubeless. 
Surly was doing the 29 plus, and as far as I can tell, there wasn't a 27.5 plus before WTB showed that Trailblazer tire with Rocky Mountain in, I forget if it was 13 or 14. And uh, 27.5 was a whole different way of coming, kind of coming in or whatnot. But yeah, 1999 was the first time you could really buy a 29 inch tire. And it seemed like right around 2000 and in into the early 2000s, it was very, very small. And on my side at, at Ibis, seeing 29ers become something people were actually asking for on the higher end for regular trail riding, not just cross country stuff, that was more like 2008, 2009. So it wasn't even that long ago that folks weren't even thinking about 29 inch wheels outside of the gravel community and the super long distance type riding. What are your experiences of 29 coming in? Man, I was not a fan, um, like zero love for this. And I just remember thinking kind of like you said with even 26, super flexy, super heavy, prone to flats and damage and frames were awkward and long and they didn't climb well, they didn't descend well, they didn't do pretty much anything well. Um, So with that being said, you know, do 29ers still suck? (laughs) I definitely don't think so. They've come a long ways. Man, I remember my first rides on uh, early 29ers. And just for reference, Niner Bikes was founded in 2005. And they were really the first company to just honestly go full on. Like Gary Fisher was pushing the 29ers thing pretty hard too, but kind of do a different segment of the market than was Niner Bikes. And then I remember the Santa Cruz Tallboy came out somewhere around late 2008 or early 2009. And that bike was incredibly popular and a lot of folks loved it. And when we test rode that thing, I remember going over the handlebars three times on my first ride on that tall boy. And at this point, 29ers were suffering from super steep head angles. And most of the geometry had been copy pasted from the 26 inch wheel bikes. So lots of folks loved the tall boy. They loved everything about it, which is fine. It it was a good bike at the time. But man, I could not get into that thing coming from the more aggressive side of the world. So 29ers were very oriented towards the endurance and the cross-country segment. And the geometry was not really properly developed for a more all-around cohesive package. And people kind of had some misconceptions. The bikes were kind of, everyone assumed they would be limited to very short travel because the wheels were so big. And because they were limited to short travel at the time and there was no forks available, no demand for forks, people thought that they really needed that more cross-country type geometry. So they were really kind of pigeonholed due to a bunch of circumstantial reasons, which is, it is what it is. It's how history kind of works sometimes. But yeah, without forks, you really can't have a <laughs> a complete bike. And I think that speaks to um, the, the youngness of our industry and some of the changes that we're seeing now. Um, mountain biking's still young, right? This is not a, something that's been going on for hundreds of years, and we've uh, figured out our, all our innovation processes and production lines and uh, how to move from one standard to the next. And so I think what is interesting here is that 29ers was truly stuck by the chain of aspects that were all related, right? You have to have a set of tires that are 29. You have to have a set of wheels that are 29. Well, now you have to have spokes that are definitely not just road-rated spokes, but like mountain bike-rated spokes and hubs to go with those and hoops. And I mean, there's just so many pieces that line up uh, in order to make a 29er happen. And so it really was kind of a limit of the chain of supply that was keeping 29ers in kind of a 
a terrible performance category. And I remember telling customers this uh, over and over because at the time I was actually running uh, the Jensen USA will call shop. And I would turn as many customers away from 29er as I could because I just (laughs) did not see them being good quality bikes. And in the 26 world, you could get such good bikes with so so well thought out geometry and all that kind of stuff. And so I just couldn't understand buying 29ers. However, I have to be thankful for those people who proved me wrong. And one of those people is a guy by the name of Andy McMullen, who's uh, probably one of my best friends, used to work for Jensen and was a 29er advocate for so long. And he actually owned that tall boy And I wrote it, and yeah, it was a thing. Kind of reminded me of my Santa Cruz (laughs) bullet in that it put me over the bars more than once. So uh, (laughs) there was that. But uh, he's been a 29er fanboy the whole time. And it's kind of funny because now I ride 29ers quite consistently. And he loves to rub that in my face. And I tell him I win on dropper (laughs) post, but he wins on 29ers. So, Oh, man. (laughs) Well, that whole early adoption of the 29er thing in the late 2000s, we look at that today and our lens is very different now than it was back then. Because back in the mid 2000s, late 2000s, the rate of change within the industry was much slower than it is now. Now you've got to have a product idea and to market within 18 months or less. It used to be you had at least two or maybe even three years to develop something get tooling done up, get prototypes, test it, and bring it to market. But nowadays, the amount of information that's available to consumers through social media in particular, it's so vast. People are alerted to new trends so quickly that things are changing way faster than we could ever adapt to. And the 29er thing, it seems to, like now we see how it came in kind of slowly in hindsight, but at the time, that was a pretty rapid change. So I was at IBIS, and in late 2009, 2010, the economy was still hurting pretty bad, but... Folks were buying bikes. We were doing fine. But then in 2010, a lot of dealers kept telling us that they couldn't sell a single 26-inch wheel bike except for an Ibis, and everyone wanted 29ers. So there was a massive shift of that pendulum between, say, 2007, 8 and 2010. So that was a three-year changeover, more or less, that the majority of bikes being sold were 29ers. And that, in turn, pushed the fork guys and the tire guys. I know that the probably the biggest impediment to making 29ers more palatable at the time was legitimate suspension products and legitimate tires. It's really easy to make rims in whatever diameter you need. Rim manufacturing is simple. It's cheap. It's it's one of the easiest bike parts to probably make. So changing the diameter and the hole drilling is no big deal. You don't need really that much new tooling or anything. But then tires, you're going to need to get at least 2,000 tires from a tire supplier in order to try something. And if you're trying 2,000 tires, tires aren't that cheap. There's a lot of, tires are vastly made by hand. So the labor cost, even over in Asia, is still fairly high. And if you have 2,000 tires that no one wants, that's pretty hard to move. That's a substantial commitment. But then the fork, casting that, the lowers, the fork lowers, that cast alone is so expensive that that's really the giant, you know, that's that's really the determining factor on if a new wheel size is going to take over, if the fork manufacturers are willing to take that risk. Back in 2005 or so, I think you had to go like White Brothers if you wanted a 29er fork. And there might have been a couple others, but they were more one-off brands. And now White Brothers is essentially MRP and they make amazing products nowadays. They didn't have quite that reputation at the time. So 
yeah, that's. It, I'm surprised it took so long for 29ers to become what they were, but it was kind of a different landscape back in that time period. Yeah, and there's definite investment cost uh, from frame manufacturers as, as well. Not quite as um, brutal for a lot of the frame manufacturers that worked in metals like steel and aluminum, uh, just because production costs are a little less. But when you're talking carbon molds, and you know you're looking at a mold that can be thirty, forty, fifty thousand um, dollars. Oh, that's only one mold. You need at least three of those. More likely four for the four different front triangle sizes. Yep. And then you're going to need a bunch of molds to build up your swing arm, which is why all these different size front triangles use the same size swing arm. Yeah. So totally, uh, you know, it's understandable that, um, we, we hesitated a little bit to jump into this market, but it is interesting that the consumers definitely started moving to that 29 side. Um, it went from me turning people away from it to, I couldn't convince most of my customers that I was right. And, uh, to be fair, I, I wasn't right. Uh, you know, I was originally, but as things went on, um, you know, I had to amend my thoughts on on the twenty nine wheel. I still never thought I would own one, uh, but we'll get to that story in a second. So, obviously, we had twenty six, and you know, that's. Um, touted as kind of the more playful wheel because it's smaller and um, a little more robust because the spokes and the rims are also uh, narrower or, you know, less diameter to them so that they're able to handle forces a little better. And then you have your 29 wheels, which kind of had been categorized towards the XC side of things, but was kind of getting more into the trail all mountain category as, as things improved. So why didn't we just stop there with 26 and 29? Where did this 27.5 thing come from? Oh man, that's a great point. So I think it might, might have been 2013. We had just released the Mojo HD 160 at Ibis. And we were we had our Ripley. It was finally to market. We were selling it. It was going fine. And we had our HD and that bike was doing great. And we allowed folks, we made the, the secondary set of shock chips and we realized you could mount it up with a shorter shock to have a slightly short travel, really stout bike. And I really liked that setup. We called it the HD 140. So sure enough, with the original Mojo Carbon, a handful of guys on the internet started shimming down their rear shocks and putting on 27.5 wheels, 650B at the time is what we called them. And I, none of us really took it that seriously, to be honest. Um, some of these folks were, were fairly interesting characters with their you know, bike setups and such. And you'd look at their bike and there would be so many things that were just would not work for anyone that was an aggressive or advanced rider. But then they would run these 650B tires and we would just kind of lump everything into the really <laughs> sort of category. So it was, you know, we honestly did not take it seriously. And the last thing we wanted to deal with was a new wheel size. We had just jumped through so many hoops and been through so much to get the Ripley to market. We had no intentions or desires to have to do anything like that again. And so there's this weird conception out there with a lot of folks that the bike industry is full of conspiracies and that there's some amazing bikes out there that the bike industry is purposely withholding from the consumers and they're forcibly pushing not 100% quality products out to the world, when in reality, that's not the case at all. The bike industry is tiny, it's cash-strapped, it's doing its best to make the best possible product in a very crazy marketplace, too. So we kept seeing these uh, rather interesting characters talking about 650B, and the last thing we wanted to do was really push it. I remember getting handed a 650B wheel set 650B fork and some really 
some tires that I was not that excited to ride and being told, hey, try this. Let us know if this is real. And I tried it and I just, the fork was flexy. The wheels were noodly. The tires were terrible. And it felt kind of like my bike, just not nearly as much fun and not, not as rad, not as solid. But I did notice that my buddies said, hey, you just got faster on these wide open sections of trail, which is interesting, but it was not a setup I wanted to ride. So none of us wanted to really push 650B industry side. We wanted to be paying attention to it in case, God forbid, it did pick up steam and momentum. But it was something that was coming very much from tinkerers in their garage wanting to try something different. We thought they were trying something different simply for the sake of being different. And we kind of downplayed it and just thought it was not that big of a deal. But it was very consumer driven. No one in the industry, besides Kirk Paseni perhaps, wanted to push 650B stuff at that point in time, late 2003. 13-ish, something like that. Yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, I'm not quite on the manufacturing side of the industry, but on the retail side, we were still still reeling from trying to convince people uh, of the benefits of having even an, an additional wheel size of 29. And so, like, the idea of being like, oh, no, here's a third one. We were just like, I, I don't <laughs> want to. This is, this is no desire for us. Um, so it was always kind of funny seeing the backlash uh, from customers who were saying that we were pushing it. And it was like, oh, my, like I had no desire. <laughs> I could have lived with 2.6 yeah. and 2.9 and, and just had those. And that was enough for me. But, uh, it, you know, it is interesting that this was pushed again by tinkerers kind of um, testing the waters. And, you know, I think there are definite things that um, were beneficial to it. Like you said, in wide open sections, there was a little uh, faster speed and stuff. And we did find that um, 27.5 had some benefits, some of the pluses, uh, excuse the word, because we'll be talking about that <laughs> soon, but some of the pluses that 29er had, but some of the pluses that 26 had. And uh, I, I do feel like that transition happened a lot quicker. Uh, like you said, it, it came in in 2013. And by 2015, I felt like you couldn't hardly find a 26 bike option for sale at that point. 2014 was crazy. That's when the Mojo HD3 came out. So the HDR was the rebranded HD140. And that thing probably sold 90 27.5 versions to every 10 26 inch versions it was crazy that bike was it kind of was a shoehorn fill in the gap type bike it rode fine it was decent but it was definitely designed around shoehorning in the bigger wheels into an existing mold and chassis rather than a whole new bike from the ground up and they sold really well it kept ibis doing totally you know staying in the in the black which is good it it definitely was the right bike for the time but the hd3 was a huge improvement over that and that bike was really pushed to market as quickly as absolutely possible first prototype showed up in february and we were, were selling the bike to the public in november so that rate of change of 27.5 coming in was so much faster than 29 that was nuts but everyone was also had gotten burned by the 29 thing so everyone was trying to anticipate this next wheel chi wheel size change as much as possible. You saw Santa Cruz come out with the Bronson and that might've been late 13, early 14, something like that. But that bike just, I think that bike right there turned Santa Cruz bikes into a totally different company with how well that thing did. The tall boy was the first bike to do that to Santa Cruz. And then actually no, that probably the blur, the blur VPP that Hans, the owner of Ibis now helped usher in in 2003 that bike brought Santa Cruz to a new level, and then probably a bunch of other bikes helped him out along the way. But then I really saw the Tallboy and the Bronson as being the next most important bikes. The Nomad's a key one too, but 
Yeah, the 27.5 change happened so fast. Within 18 months, it went from very small portions of sales, 650B, to all of a sudden, almost all of your sales are 27.5. Yeah, and I think that's where um, uh, some of the frustration from customers come is, you know, uh, there was a lot of people not ready to jump ship to either 27.5 or 2.9, and to this day, they still uh, hold out against that. Um, and that's okay because a lot of them are riding bikes that are still great 26 inch bikes. And to me, it's kind of exciting because we still see legacy products, even though manufacturers, it's, you know, not totally in their best interest to keep making these things all the time. At some point you've got to recover production costs and all that. Um, but I love that we still have quite a few good 26 inch options. It is tending towards the DH and dirt jump side of things, you know, a little more rowdy, um, cause that wheel size holds up really well under those things. But, um, as we go down the line, we're seeing the bigger wheel sizes get even tougher and lighter and better performing. Yeah. And so, uh, with that being said, do you think there's ever a time where 26 is going to actually see the death nail and go away? <laughs> ever go away? Uh, well, in my opinion, it kind of has gone away. I think it's, it's done and dusted. I know at WTB, um, when I was still there, we made sure that there was a handful of decent tire offerings available in 26, and they would sell, but very slowly, and they were always always diminishing in sales. We would still open some new products in 26 because the, the sales were there, but it's it's so much smaller and bikes break, bikes fade out. So in my opinion, 26 is basically done. It's just a legacy at this point. Um, dirt jump bikes will probably continue to be 26, but I don't see dirt jump bikes being a very significant portion of the market. Bike park bikes, I see them all getting over to 27.5. I did a custom tire for a bike park when I was at WTB and that was a 27.5 tire and that was just seen as normal. So I think bike park and more aggressive bikes are all 27.5 baseline now. So it's just a handful of slope style guys that are running 26 and then the dirt jump crew and yeah, maybe some kids bikes or something <laughs> a way low end. Well, there you have it folks. Uh, Jeff is calling it 26 is dead. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it rode fine. I had no problems riding it myself. I was in no hurry to swap over to 27.5. Like, honestly, I don't think this wheel size thing is nearly as big of a deal in real life as people make it out to be. I think bike geometry and the quality of how things are built are more important than simply one, one factor. Like your head angle does not determine everything about your bike. Similarly, your wheel size does not determine everything about how your bike's going to ride. Yeah. So I, we can't put too much water in just wheel size alone. I fully agree. And I think that's probably one of the things that I had to, um, you know, eat crow on because my, my thoughts were that like, you'll never be able to make a good 29er that will ride well. And at this point, like I fully admit I was fully wrong about that because there are some amazing 29ers. Well, keep in mind a couple other things have happened since 2008 that have really helped pave the way for improving current 29 technology. So one by drivetrains are extremely important. The One of the hardest challenges for Colin, the engineer at IBIS with building the Ripley, was squeezing the shortest chainstays he could fit in there with a front derailleur. Right. So I don't I think the current Ripley still has a front derailleur mount on it, but the vast majority of bikes going out any bike company's door now are one by and that allows for a ton more real estate for short chainstays. So most of these the I I want I want to say all, but I don't know if that's the case. Most modern day 29ers that are fun to ride and have a short rear end are one by only. 
That's pretty key. You're seeing that pretty often. There, there were a few frames here and there that were still, you know, putting the mount available on there, but uh, that's getting very infrequent these days. Yeah, the side swing derailleur from Shimano has helped a bit with fitting that still on there, so you can't forget about that. And then I think through axles are super important because on a 29-inch bike, the wheel's a lot flexier. If the frame's flexy as well, your bike's going to feel pretty nudely pretty fast. So... When you get that through, even a 142 through axle is way stiffer than a 135 by 10 open dropout QR. So boost is cool and all. I don't notice much difference between boost and 142, regular 142. Super boost plus is cool too, but I just think the straight up through axle in the rear becoming standard commonplace, that is a big factor of why 29ers have become as good as they are now. Well, I think that gives us a pretty solid look at the history of... 26, 29, and the rise of 275. There's still a ton more to talk about here. We're going to be looking at what's going on in present day in a future episode, as well as looking into the future and what we have to look forward to with wheel sizes plus, super boost plus, all these things. So we'll get to those in a future episode. So be on the look for that. Thanks for joining us with the episode of Kendall versus Kendall. We hope you enjoyed this tour of tire sizes and more. And we've got some more episodes coming up soon. If you have a topic you'd like to discuss, drop us a message either at the Jensen USA Instagram or Facebook pages, uh, at my personal Instagram page, Jeff Kendallweed, or on my personal Facebook page. And you can email Seth directly at skendall at jensenusa.com. Also, if you haven't done so yet, make sure to get out there and give Jeff a follow on his Instagram. But be sure to check out his YouTube channel. This channel is blowing up with the coolest videos. I highly recommend watching his Finding Flow series. This is where he goes out to just epic trails, shreds them like only Jeff Kendallweed can, and then he highlights the amazing people who build them. It's really cool look into uh, the builders behind the trails and just what you can do on these trails if you got the skills and the time to play around on them. So we've included a link in the podcast description, and as always, keep pedaling. Hey, come and shine and check.